What a great song. What a beautiful uh, song. And they did such a great job with that. Thank you, Josh and the team and Ann and uh, Bailey. Really, really wonderful. And everybody who edits those and gets them ready for us. Uh, for our family cast really good. Hey everybody, my name is Ryan and I'm the lead pastor here at Crossroads and it is great to be with you this evening. And uh, wherever you are, uh, I hope that you have settled in. We're gonna have a conversation this evening that should be quite interesting, I think. Um, but uh, we're in this series, Lessons from the Land of Quarantine, where we're asking, what are we learning during this period of time that we might not have learned at any other point in time if we weren't in this space of suffering? And two weeks ago, we started this series and we said our anchor verse, the verse that I'm encouraging everyone to memorize, commit to heart, uh, is from Psalm 23, a very familiar Psalm for some, a brand new Psalm for uh, others, but it says, even when I walk through the darkest valley, I will not be afraid for you are close beside me, your rod and your staff protect and comfort me. We're talking about lessons from the land of quarantine, this valley. In the first week, we talked about some biblical images for this space that we're in. And uh, to get us started, I've got a question. I've asked Rod and Wendy to not jump away uh, too fast, but before they <laughs> leave and I get to have Wendy come by and Wendy and I can stand closer than six feet because we live in the same house. But uh, we have this question, what do you love to avoid, but no, you really shouldn't, right? So what is something that you, you just kind of naturally have a tendency to avoid, but deep inside you're like, I shouldn't avoid it. Rod, what do you think? I think I'll plead the fifth on this one. How's that? <laughs> no, it's in your contract. You have to answer I do have to answer the question. I do have to answer. Okay, so I think the first thing that comes to my mind is when I know that I discern or I'm prompted to tell someone a hard truth. Oh, yeah. And sometimes it could be, uh, it might be hurtful to them mm. or it's pointing out something I discern as an area that yeah. could use improvement or a flaw. Boy, avoidance is a lot easier. Avoidance right? is Just way easier. Easier avoid way that easier. scenario, definitely. Because yes. there's so much that could, feels like it could go oh. wrong relationally. Somebody not know your heart. Yes. There could be a lot of fallout from th that. That's not a pleasant job to do. Yeah. Yeah. So that's A number one. Yeah, yeah. That's good. How about you, Wendy? What you know, are you? Rod has a really good and deep answer. <laughs> Mine is really simple. It's uh, I avoid the dentist and the doctor. Yeah, you do avoid the dentist. You do avoid the dentist, right? And, and it's true. It's, those aren't necessarily wonderful experiences experiences, right? right? But right. they are. Well, thank you guys for hosting and thank being you, here this evening and helping us get this conversation started. You know, the reality is uh, we do like to avoid things uh, because sometimes we can avoid these things because we don't feel the pain of it, right? And, and we, as people, generally uh, become masters of avoidance, right? If you're a fill-in-the-blank person, uh, you can go over to uh, crossroadscolorado.com slash resources and grab the talk notes. I would encourage you to do that actually this evening uh, or grab a sheet of paper and just write your thoughts down. Uh, maybe actively journal as we're talking. Um, but uh, here's the truth. I think that we are masters of avoidance. I think at the end of the day, we love to avoid uh, difficult things, right? What are some things that you avoid? Like, think about that for a second. Maybe post them in the comments and we can uh, take a peek at those. Like, what is it that you tend to avoid uh, for whatever reasons, right? We're masters of it though. Uh, I know my kids avoid eye contact, <laughs> right? You know, when, when, when I'm trying to have a conversation with them, you know, you gotta remember when they were little, I'd have to take their little face and like put it right in at me, like look at me, I want to, but we avoid eye contact, right? We avoid tough conversations, like Rod said. Uh, we also avoid responsibility. Anybody know anybody? I know nobody watching is actually the personal responsibility avoider. Uh, we know people that do that though, right? So uh, is that you? Do you avoid personal responsibility? Is it somebody else's fault all the time? 
And I think one of the, the most important things that we tend to avoid uh, because we can often is the pain of others. It's very easy to avoid the pain of others, especially if we don't experience that pain, especially if it's not in our purview. In a sense, we don't make emotional eye contact, right? We turn the channel, we don't understand it and we avoid the pain of others because it's, it's easy to. And here's the thing about avoidance. And I'm going to tread into waters tonight that uh, I, I have a, a sense might uh, prove to be a little concerning to you or that might actually frustrate or irritate you. And here's what I've learned in my life. I've learned that when I'm uh, trying to engage and grow spiritually and I'm listening to someone uh, and they say something that upsets me or disrupts me, or I start to feel it emotionally, that's generally what God is trying to get my attention with. <laughs> and so tonight, as we have this conversation, uh, I would encourage you that if I say something or you hear a word that sparks a bit of panic in you, you hear a word that frustrates you, you hear something to maybe hold it and don't release it until you can find out what it is that God is doing with that experience. Because what I wanna say here is the avoidance, the actual ability to avoid the pain of others it's, it's a tool of privilege. It's a tool of privilege and avoidance gives us blissful blindness and deafness, right? Privilege allows us to avoid the pain of others. Privilege allows us, I don't have to have that tough conversation like Rod said, right? At the end of the day, if, if, I, if I don't have the conversation, I can just move on with my life. They can move on with theirs. I don't have to. And so we can avoid these things and just live in blissful blindness and deafness, thinking and believing that it doesn't affect me, right? And that's what avoidance does. We love avoidance because it creates a false sense of security, and to illustrate this idea of the power of avoidance and how privilege can actually be a tool, right? That privilege actually promotes avoidance is let's talk for a second about the reality of the state of our world as it comes to the pandemic of COVID-19. COVID-19 to date has taken the life of 330,000 people throughout the world. 330,000 people have died because of COVID, which is tragic. It's awful. It's terrible. But there's another statistic that's really fascinating that shows the power of avoidance and its place within privilege. And that is that last year, 2.2 million people, 2.2 million people died of diarrhea in the world. Now we didn't know that. Many of us in the West Many of us had no idea because that happens mainly in developing countries where people don't have access to clean water, to basic medical care. And we can avoid that quite easily because of Western privilege. And we can live blissfully, not disrupting our lives, all of our restaurants staying open, all of our amenities available to us, getting our haircuts, living our lives, while 2.2 million people die of something completely preventable. And it doesn't disrupt our lives, but what, what happens? COVID-19 comes and it destroys our privilege. COVID-19 is no respecter of men. We're actually gonna talk about that next week. COVID-19 comes and disrupts the privilege that we were experiencing. And then what happens? We find it valuable to make a change to save lives because our life is affected. We no longer have the privilege of healthcare. We no longer have the privilege of avoiding, right? That 
we actually have to deal with it. And so we do. But because of our privilege, we go for years and decades avoiding the stark reality that healthcare is not available for 2.2 million people or was not available for 2.2 million people last year who died of diarrhea. And so we have to figure out a, a better way to tackle this problem of avoidance if we're going to engage in the realities and the pain in our world. If we continue to live in a space where we just say, well, I can avoid, I don't have to think about it because of my privilege, wherever that privilege comes from, generally from economics or being a part of a dominant culture, I just allow pain to exist and victims to be created. But if we don't allow ourselves to be transformed and changed and, and actually learn from this experience that avoidance cannot be our response any longer to the pain of others, if we don't learn that lesson, we will go right back to a situation where we're blinded and we're deaf. There's a, a really fascinating, wild, crazy, disturbing story in the Hebrew Bible that I think can show us actually a better path, a path that can heal us as individuals, a path that could actually heal our country, a path that could heal our world because it teaches us the dangers of the path of avoidance. We have to wade through some cultural things. We have to deal with some strange, uh, miraculous elements to this, some misunderstandings about God, in my opinion. But if we lean into it, we can actually see something very powerful. And it's actually a theme that is all throughout scripture. So I wanna look at this passage in the book of Numbers. If you're new to Bible study, one thing around Crossroads is we, we do look to scripture to be a space of wisdom, to give us a, a, a look at how people have tried to live a wise life. It is a book of wisdom where it helps us explore and navigate the, the realities of our current world. And so I wanna look at this passage in Numbers, which is a book that's found in the Old Testament, as we call it in, in you know, Christianity or the Hebrew Bible for Jewish uh, brothers and sisters. And Numbers is Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, fourth book of the Old Testament, part of what's called the Pentateuch. It tells the story of the beginning of the nation of Israel. Uh, it's this, this story takes place after the Exodus, before the Israelites have come into what became known as their promised land. And so Numbers chapter 21, verse four through nine, it says this. Then the people of Israel set out from Mount Hor. So they're leaving Mount Hor. They're taking the road to the Red Sea to go around the land of Edom. But the people grew, look what it says, impatient with the long journey. And in their impatience, they began to speak against God and Moses. Right, they grew impatient with the difficulty that they were facing. They grew impatient with the amount of time it was taking. I don't know, does that sound familiar to anybody? Anybody growing impatient right now? Anybody growing impatient with the reality that you're still sitting in your home with your family watching this and not with friends, that you're not in the Taft Avenue location? You're growing impatient with this long journey. And so we begin to speak against God, begin to speak against Moses. They begin to have this frustration. And here's what, a little principle we can grab from this is that impatience, when we start to grow impatience with our experience, this is a pathway that will lead to self-destruction. We're gonna see that in the story. But this is just a great reminder that as soon as we start to feel impatient with the reality, it leads us down a path of self-destruction. And so we ought to pause and reflect before we start acting too quickly in our impatience 
right? Not, not necessarily with our frustration with certain things, but when we become impatient with the path that God has us on, we have to be careful because it will lead us down a path of self-destruction where we become concerned about doing it our way. We become concerned about, and we start to see God through a lens of our own agenda, our own plan. So the text goes on and it says, the people complained and they said, why have you brought us out of Egypt to die here in the wilderness? Right, they, they, they no longer assumed that Moses and God were bringing them out that they might thrive, but it wasn't happening in their time. It wasn't happening in their way. So they started complaining. And we all know that complaining is not just simply verbal. The complaining, it leads to a whole way of life a whole way of, of treating our neighbor, a whole, a whole just like edge that you live in, right? Nobody complains with a wonderful attitude, right? So they're complaining and they're grumbling and they're being angry towards one another and everything's starting to self-destruct. And they say, you brought us out here to die. Why did you do that? That's the assumption. They said, there's nothing to eat and nothing to drink. And we hate this horrible manna. I mean, God was providing miraculously food that would nourish them and sustain them, but it wasn't enough. They wanted something different. They wanted bread to drink, to eat. They wanted something different than the manna. They were growing weary and tired. And so what happens? They stopped trusting God. They stopped trusting their leader. And that's what happens when weariness hits us in the wilderness. When weariness hits us in these spaces where the journey is long and arduous, is that we start to not trust. We start to not trust the people around us. We don't trust the leadership. We don't trust uh, uh, we don't trust God, that God is at work in the midst of it. Even to the point where we can actually reframe and turn the whole thing upside down, just as the Israelites did and said, why did you lead us out here to die? Why have you brought us out of Egypt to die here in the wilderness? If that isn't a statement of mistrust, right? We've been duped, they said. And so here's what the text says. The text says that the Lord sent poisonous snakes among the people and many were bitten and died. So there was this belief that in the midst of this, God had sent a plague of poisonous snakes among the people and the people are getting bitten by these snakes. They're dying everywhere. And so the people freak out and they come to Moses and they cry out, we've sinned by speaking against the Lord and against you. They say, oh, we made a mistake. Would you pray that the Lord will take away the snakes? And it says, so Moses prayed for the people. Now I have to pause for a second here and say, I don't believe that God sent the snakes. And that might surprise you. you. Say, well, how can you say that? It says right there that the Lord sent the snakes. Well, because here's the thing, the way I understand scripture is that scripture is a, is a book that teaches us wisdom, that gives us the journey of people discovering God. The journey of people in their time, in their way, being faithful to God, interpreting the world the way they understood it. Because we use these words a lot that the Bible is ancient, it's ambiguous and it's diverse. It's inspired, it's given to us by God, but there is an antiquity to it, which means the way people thought about the world and the universe and creation is different than what we know now because humanity has developed it's consciousness, it's awareness, it's understanding. God has been in a space of, of meeting us where we are and revealing more and more and more and more of his true character. And the fullness of God, the fullness of God's character, I believe was given to us in Jesus. And so I don't believe as this passage would have us understand because I've come to know Jesus, that God is petty and easily offended. In, in Jesus, we see that God is not one who says, oh, you're gonna talk bad about me. Well, here's some snakes that'll bite you. <laughs> but we do know from the history of humanity that antiquity, in antiquity in this time period, people understood everything 
as directly related to the act of the gods. That if good things happened to your crops, the gods were blessing you. You had done something right. It was a this for that mentality. If there was a drought, it was because you had sinned. If this person was sick, it was because they had sinned. If you were rich, it was because God loved you because you were faithful. That was the interpretation, the understanding of the universe. And we've changed that understanding. We have evolved. Jesus has helped us see it differently. In fact, this is what Jesus says. Now look at how closely this is really, this is fascinating. Jesus actually said, you parents, if your children ask for a loaf of bread, right? What were the, I mean, the Israelites were essentially asking for a loaf of bread. Like they're like, just give us something other than manna, God. Like, this is awful. What are you doing? Now they didn't ask it in a nice way, but they're children of God right? How many of your kids ask for a cookie in a nice way all the time, right? He says, if your children ask for a loaf of bread, do you give them a stone? Or if they ask for a fish, do you give them a snake? And Jesus says, of course not. Now here's the trick, right? Jesus says, so if you're, if you sinful people know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your heavenly father give good gifts to those who ask him? Jesus helps us understand that what was happening here was the Israelites were plagued by snakes. They came across this plague of snakes, this infestation, people were dying. And what happens when we suffer? You and I still do this. We go into a lot of self-reflection. <laughs> when it's true of us still today, when something bad happens to us, we hit the pause button and we go, what's going on in my life? And there are some of us that are watching that you might actually say, okay, I'm suffering. Is any of this my responsibility? Have I brought any of this upon myself? We still talk in those terms. We still wonder when we sit in the bottom of a hole, we ask ourselves, is the shovel in my hand? Is it time to stop digging? And that's what had happened, right? Through the consciousness and antiquity of human beings. I said, this terrible thing is happening. We must have done something. The gods must be against us. Yahweh must be angry. He must have sent this plague of snakes. And so they go to Moses, they say, we get it. It's our fault. This is what we've done. We've complained to me. We shouldn't repent. Do something, go pray for us. And God meets people. God comes and condescends and meets people in their understanding of God. And so the Lord says to Moses, okay, make a replica of a poisonous snake and attach it to a pole. This is so interesting. And all who are bitten will live if they simply look at it. And this is crazy. There's no like, go make your sacrifices at the temple because you've offended me. There's none of, there is something so bizarre here happening. Make a replica of the, of the very thing that is poisoning you, put it on a pole and then just tell the people, look at it. All they've got to do is look at it and they will live. Just look at what the problem is. Isn't that interesting? Look at what the problem, stop looking at me for the problem. Stop looking at yourself. Just look at what the problem is and they will live. So Moses does it. He makes a, a snake out of bronze. He attaches it to a pole. And then anyone who was bitten by that snake looked at the bronze snake and was healed. And that, that is, now here's a great, this is a great theme all throughout scripture that we see is that when we will pause and when people will look at what it is that is harming them, what it is that is destroying them, they will actually find life in it. Jesus actually said, when I'm lifted up, referring to the cross, I will draw men to me, right? That there is this reality that we have to gaze upon the, the, the crucified Lord. Thomas needed to see the hands. He needed to look at the wounds. 
so that he could find spiritual wholeness. It's when we fully accept our own weakness, when we see the problems within us, right? And here's the point. Here's this great theme. Here's what we see. This is what God is teaching us. This is why these texts are so amazing and so inspiring. Not because they tell us that God is petty and sends snakes to kill us, but because God is gracious and loves us and shows us how to navigate this world. And I, I really believe what we can learn here is this, that when we are willing to look at what is killing us, God can use it to heal us. That's redemption that if we're willing to pause and actually look at what it is that's actually killing us, if we will stop blaming ourselves, stop blaming someone else and look at what it actually is, that that will become the very thing that heals us. Now I'm learning about snakes here in uh, Northern Colorado. It was, it's interesting that they were talking about uh, this in the pre-show. Um, I, 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 I enjoy hiking and I've been told when you hike, you gotta be careful, watch out for rattlesnakes. This is the truth, right? Around here, you all have rattlesnakes. And they say, uh, make sure you carry some Benadryl that'll get you over it and if you get bit until you can get antivenom. So I looked up antivenom th this week. I said, well, how do you make antivenom? Because I hear it's very, very expensive, very expensive, very hard to get. You don't carry around vials of antivenom, right? It's not like Tylenol. Here's what's fascinating. You know, you cannot make antivenom without venom. Think about that. The very thing that will save you and rescue you from death is needed, right? That very thing that's killing you is needed to rescue you from death. So what they do when they make venom, and again, I'm not a scientist. I just Googled it, right? And I looked it up in multiple places, right? Let's just be real honest here. But they, they'll take venom and they will take that venom and in a small dose, put it into a, an animal and that animal's antibodies will react with the venom it needs the venom, it needs the poison and it will create it and turn it into and they'll, they'll modify it and it becomes antivenom. And so you actually need venom, what is poisoning you to heal you. That's great. We're talking about COVID-19, right? We need, a, we need an antidote, right? They're looking for an antidote. They're looking for some, something that will help us develop our immune system, the immunization of it, Right? We need a strength. It's always a part of it. The, the venom, the disease, the death, the destruction is always a part of what rescues and saves. The very thing that is killing us will be the thing that God uses to save us. And right now I believe in our world, we have three poisonous snakes. That we have a plague of three poisonous snakes that are biting us, that are in, injecting their venom into us. And we need any anti-venom for these things but we will not find it until we look at it. So there are three venoms that are coursing through the veins of the Western world and particularly here in the United States. The first venom is clearly racism. We're living and seeing our world erupt. Venom is coursing through the system and it's a venom of racism. We could go on and on and on about statistics that uh, give us the, the reality of what's happening to communities and to people of color. If you simply look up the, the reality of the state prison system right now, the average, the average across all states is that people of color are incarcerated at a rate 5.1 times, more than times, more than white people, men. You, you, I don't know if you know this now, but there are not 5.1 you know, uh, times more uh, people of color than white people in America. <laughs> but that's the average. There are some states where it's at 10 times the rate. There are some states where one in every 15, I think it's 12 states, there are one in every 15 black men are in prison. 
There is a disparage here. There is a venom that's coursing through and it, it, it comes from racism. It comes from 400 years of slavery, 400 years of unresolved and, 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 and unredeemed evil. There's a venom. There's a venom of sexism in our world. There's a venom of sexism that, that says that men and women are not equal. And one of the ways in which we see that is that if you look statistically, women will make 81% of the salary of their male counterpart. Same experience, same education, same work, same performance, 81% of a male salary. There's a venom. There's a venom of sexism that says that men and women are not equal, that men and women should not have equality. It races through us and it's from a history of the suffering and the, the putting down of women. We have a venom of homophobia in our nation. And I use the word homophobia here to refer to the fear and the prejudice of all sexual minorities, the, of gay and transgender, bisexual, of that which is, is, is in the minority, that there's a venom of homophobia. And here's how we know there's a venom because teenagers, teens, who are part of the uh, LGBTQ plus community, teens are at a five times greater risk of attempting suicide than their straight friends. May 17th was International Day Against Homophobia and Transphobia. There's a venom that's coursing through the world and coursing through our country that is creating fear and death and destruction. And here's the sad part is that as a church, as followers of Jesus, we have to own the reality that we have been a part, that our story is part of the oppression, that this oppression has hidden behind religion, that the Bible has been used to suppress the marginalized in healthcare. The Bible has been used to say, oh, those who are sick, right? They're sick because there's sin in their life. God's judgment. And we found a Bible verse to quote. Women have been oppressed and we found a Bible verse for that. The LGBT community has been excluded from the body of Christ, has been placed as outsiders. And we found a Bible verse for that one. People of color have been excluded from grace have been in the, in the, and have been held into slavery and excluded from full rights and citizenship. And we have found a Bible verse for that. We have to look. We have to look at what is poisoning us. And so how do we do that? How do we look at the very thing that is destroying our humanity so that we might find our rescue, so that God might use it to heal us? How do we do that in a very real way? I think it does start with, and there's a few things that we can do in our everyday normal lives. First of all, it has to start by looking for the venom that's inside us individually. What's the venom that's racing towards my heart? What's the venom that's in my heart? And the way we find that is we ask this question, what's in my heart towards women? What's in my heart towards people of color? What's in my heart towards that young man, that, uh, that young person who's walking down the street, person of color, wearing the hoodie? 
who dresses differently than me? What's in my heart towards them? What's my initial response when I walk into a store and there's a, a woman of color in that store? What's my response? What's my response as I watch television and time and time again, people of color are portrayed as, as criminals. What's my response as women are portrayed as less than? What's inside of me? What's my internal bias? Because there is venom coursing inside of me and there is venom coursing inside of you. And until we're willing to recognize that, until we're willing to just hold it, we can't ever be healed from it. We can say all day long, oh, I, don't, I, I think women should be treated with full equality. I'm not racist. But until we recognize the spectrum of these things and we don't start with, I'm not racist, we start with, where do I sit in the spectrum of racism? Where do I sit in the spectrum of sexism? Where do I sit in the spectrum of homophobia? And, this, and I have to start there because we all have privilege that puts us in a spectrum of oppression. So I have to look for it inside my heart. And when, it, when I see it, when I understand it, when I, I diagnose and I go, there's the venom, there's the, there's the internal bias, there it is inside of me. There's the overtness, there's the covertness. I have to ask this very difficult question. How did it get there? When did I get bit? How did it get there? In my journey into understanding the, venom inside of me, in my journey of understanding where I am in the spectrum of racism and sexism and homophobia, I've had to come to that realization that I'm on that spectrum. I don't wanna be on that spectrum, but I'm on that spectrum. It's in me, it sits there. And I got bit mostly inside of religious settings and circles by very good, well-intentioned people. But that's where I got bit. And I've had to turn my face to the cross. I've had to turn my own ways to, to look and, and say, okay, I've got to gaze upon Jesus. I have to gaze upon this reality in me and that's where it starts with me. And the way that that starts is by committing ourselves to understanding the pain within oppressed communities. I have to commit myself to understanding the pain of women who have to work twice as hard for 20% of the money for 20% of the opportunity. I have to commit myself to understanding the pain of what it is to walk around in a black body in this nation because I don't understand that. And so I have to make a commitment. I will seek to understand that. I will not seek to judge it. I will not seek to dismiss their pain. I will not seek to qualify their pain, whatever it might be. I need to seek to, I will understand. I will work hard to understand the pain of being in a sexual minority, because I have the privilege of not being in a sexual minority. But I have to commit to that. We have to stop hiding behind this word complexity. It's just a complex situation. It's just complex. I'm so tired of it. You know what else is complex? Parenting is complex. We do it. Being married is complex. Being single is complex. Managing our finances is complex. We don't hide behind that word in any other space except the spaces where it can help us avoid. And so we have to stop hiding behind complexity and just start jumping in. And we understand and we honor, it is complex. Venom of racism, 
venom of sexism, the venom of homophobia. These are complex things that have taken years and years and years of unredeemed evil in our world. But that can't stop us from engaging. And we have to take the time. We have to take the time to, turn, to learn the names of victims and their stories and not disqualify their stories because of the way we think about their content, of what we think about their zip code, of what we think about their profession, of what we think about their life choices. We learn the names of victims. We learn their stories because we say humanity deserves to be treated with dignity. Men and women, people of color, sexual minorities, because this is what Jesus calls us to, because this is what it means. And so we have to say the names George Floyd. We have to say the name Ahmaud Arbery. We have to say the name Breonna Taylor. There are names of victims there are names of women. There are names of those in the LGBTQ community. These three names are pressing into us right now and they represent something so much bigger. They represent our inability to stop avoiding and start accepting and start gazing and start looking. And probably one of the most important things that we can do is that we can protect the nobility of our professions by exposing the hypocrites and hypocrisies that would destroy it. I would call a, a noble profession one that serves the common good. I believe my profession of clergy is a noble profession that serves the common good. But we know, we know that there are hypocrites and, and that there is hypocrisy within it. We saw it, we see it. We see that church leaders the people that bear the, the name pastor and priest were not exempt from sexual scandal, from the oppression of women, from pedophilia. But when we stay silent, we destroy the nobility of what we're trying to do. The nobility of a profession such as law enforcement, working in the legal system. These are noble professions. And the responsibility of those in that profession that have noble character is to expose the, the play actors, those that are there for power that hide behind it, to expose it and to expose the hypocrisies. I love that in our church, we have people who are working in these professions in noble ways, that we have noble men and women who are working in the medical profession, in the legal profession. We have law enforcement officers. I think of, uh, of a couple that we have that work in our security who we've gotten to know, Wendy and I've gotten to know. Beautiful people who have been police officers. They are of noble character. And the way in which we continue our nobility and continue to protect the nobility of these professions that serve the common good is to stand up and to shine a light because we are the light of the world. That's what we are. And if we're not willing to go into the spaces that we hold dear and that we say are noble and to be the light of the world, then what good are we? What good is the salt? We say, oh, being a light is telling people that Jesus loves them. That's cheap. And that's easy. The call is to live a life worthy of Jesus, 
worthy of his sacrifice, to walk into these spaces and to be light, to do as Jesus did, who from within said, stop being a play actor. Stop being whitewashed. To expose it, to be that light and to say that it's worth it. And the beauty of it is we will suffer. And we get to participate in the suffering of Jesus. But we get to live a life worthy of the call. It's absolute foolishness to think that a life worthy of the call is giving up an hour on Sunday morning. Oh, Pastor Ryan, I I could be out fishing, but I gave it up. foolishness. I fall in love with the Jesus who said, take up your cross and follow me. I've given my life to a Jesus that says, if you follow me, you will face persecution. A Jesus that said, I didn't come to bring peace, but division. Because whenever you stand against hypocrisy, whenever you stand against the hypocrites, there will be division because there's power at stake, but that's what it means to be a light in this world, a city on a hill. So what is it that God is inviting you into today? Maybe God's committing, uh, encouraging you to commit to reading a book or a resource that will help you understand the pain of a group that doesn't have the same privilege as you. Perhaps it's people of color. Perhaps it's, it's those who are part of a sexual minority. Perhaps it's women read a book or a resource, a podcast to understand their pain. Perhaps it's to developing a relationship with someone who doesn't share that privilege to actually get to know a woman in your field who's had to work twice as hard as you. Perhaps it's to get to know and understand a gay person, a transgender person, the struggle of their life living in a world that privileges the straight. Perhaps it's time for you to elevate the voice of the marginalized and the oppressed and the leaders within those communities as we did on Blackout Tuesday, to use your social media footprint to elevate those voices. And so as we wrap up, I wanna encourage you to take a few moments to reflect, to connect with one another, fill out that connect card and give your offering. And as we do this, as we take a few moments to reflect, we have a song. And this song, believe it or not, is about identifying the privilege that keeps you safe and comfortable and abandoning it so that you can experience all that God has for you. This song, it says it like this, and I could hold on, I could hold on to who I am and never let you change me from the inside. What is that saying? I could hold on to the privilege. I could hold on to what I have that keeps me in avoidance of these circumstances and these situations, but I would never be changed if I did that. If I just held on to what made it so easy for me to avoid the pain of others. And it says, and I could be safe. Oh, I could be safe right here in your arms. I'll just go to church and be a good church person. I could be super safe right here in my privilege with the great music and the moving lights and the sounds and the backtrack. Oh, I could just be so safe here and let the goosebumps roll. And I'd never have to leave home the safety of my privilege. Never let the walls down, my privilege that protects me. But this is what the song says, it's a prayer, but you've called me higher and you've called me deeper and I'll go. 
I'll go where you lead me, Lord. Lord, call us and shape us and change us. Amen.